With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. The following program is brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Hi, my name's John Carousella, and I'm your host for Convergence on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Convergence is to consciousness as gravity is to the material world. In small amounts, gravity is overwhelmed by every other fundamental force of the universe. Gravity has something nothing else has. It's cumulative. The more matter you collect, the more gravity you get, until it becomes the most powerful force of the material world. I think convergence is like that, too. Only in this case, we're working with truth. The more truth we collect, the more convergence we experience. Connections, relationships, resonance of ideas and concepts, science and mysticism. Lately, deep truths just seem to be coming together, even as many of the illusions around us are falling apart. As within, so without. As above, so below. I know I'm feeling it, and I'll bet you are too. For the next 90 minutes, we'll be exploring concepts and topics that in some way or another bring us around to a deeper truth. Join me and my guests for this week's experience of Convergence. Welcome, everyone, to our Soulvox Roundtable. I'm John Carcella, together with my co-host, Heisey Lutmers. Hello. Sorry, I was on. <laughs> <laughs> and Mildred Lynn McDonald. Hello, John. Joining together to talk about another transformative theme. And today we're going to talk about work. In particular, loving oneself through work. And so I, I want to read a, a, an excerpt from Crossing the Unknown Sea, Work as a Pilgrimage of Identity by David White. He writes, Whether fulfillment lasts for a month or a lifetime. Whether fulfillment lasts for a month or a lifetime. Most of us would not complain of its appearance in our lives, however long or short its stay. If we cannot have a lifelong experience of wonder and inspiration through our labors, we will take just the merest touch now and again. Now, to have, as William Blake would say, a firm persuasion to set out boldly in our work is to make a pilgrimage of our labors to understand that the consummation of work lies not only in what we have done, but who we have become while accomplishing the task. In Blake's sense, a firm persuasion was a form of self-knowledge. It was understood as a result, an outcome, and a bounty that came from paying close attention to an astonishing world 
and the way each of us is made differently and uniquely for that world. So I really like this this passage because it points out how work is not just about being productive or accomplishing something, but it's a way of shaping the self through one's interaction with the world. And the idea of a firm persuasion, sometimes it might be in an area of of external fulfillment, and other times it might just be in the way we approach what we do. And so I want to explore this with my co-hosts. What does it feel like to have that firm persuasion in your work? Anybody? John, first of all, I want to share that I love this topic. It's very relevant. And I had never heard the terminology before, firm persuasion. But when I read it, I definitely was able to relate to it. And also, I can share how I I felt or I feel. So with firm persuasion, I feel a sense of inner peace. I feel a sense of security, that centeredness, uh, a sense of resolve and solidness. And I also feel happy. And have you always felt it in your in your work? No, no, it was definitely a shock to me that firm persuasion even existed. So I discovered my firm persuasion about 2003, so about 13 years ago. And and what was the what did you feel like before and what did you feel like after? I felt before I felt that I my barometer was society and I was a person who lived in society and I would look out through the lens of what I chose to define myself and I could, it would never feel centered. I felt I was in a race and I didn't really know where I was racing to. So in 2003, I made a, a big U-turn in my life and a, a decision to follow my heart and connect with the unseen and that's where the firm persuasion came from. And that's where I started to develop that sense of inner peace and security and resolve and happiness. Mm. So it it not only formed me, firm persuasion, it informed me. Mm. Nice, nice. I see. How about you? Did you always or do you have or did you have at some point a firm persuasion in your work? Uh, well, for me, when I read that, it made me think of the idea of when people say I've discovered my calling, because it's it's that idea of I know, like deep down, without any doubt, that this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is what I'm really good at. This is why I'm here. And so and I experienced that um, 17 years ago, I guess, when I first started working with the Tarot and then where that journey has taken me. Um, but I think also that it's important to uh, to point out that it doesn't have to be some sort of mystical, magical type of work that someone is doing. I think that they can experience this firm persuasion in, you know, if they work in marketing or if they work in nursing or, you know, whatever it is that they might do. So I, I don't, I watch people sometimes think that and diminish what they do 
because they think that somehow only certain types of work are really worth doing or are really important or that kind of thing. And and I think that that sense of knowing this is what I'm here to do or this is what I'm really good at or this is what gives me satisfaction to do is more the key to understanding what that firm persuasion is rather than it being a particular type of work or a particular field of work or that kind of thing. Um, and so I I experience that now, of course, then I go off on this metaphysical side, um, you know, and, and I kind of discovered that. But really working with the Tarot and everything, I think more deeply the firm persuasion was the understanding of working with people and being able to offer them something that helps them in their own path or in their own life in some way is really where that firm persuasion was. It wasn't so much about firm persuasion, it's the tarot. Tarot is just a tool. And and the other things now that I do are, you know, those are just tools and means. But I think it's that that deeper aspect of things and understanding what is it about what I do that makes me feel that way that is the firm persuasion rather than the actual thing itself. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know for me when when I read this, I was I was moved in in the same direction uh, as both you, Mildred Lynn, and you, I see. But there was another little edge to this for me because I'd spent so much of my time and energy n- not really feeling fulfilled in my work. Uh, and I saw in the way David White talked about this that the firm persuasion can emerge simply in in any situation, finding the edge of intimacy in what what I'm doing in the world, you know, how I'm interacting with the world and recognizing that that interaction itself ha- ha- holds all the promise of fulfillment if I am willing to see it as sacred. And I, I know that sounds a little bit... Um, a little bit airy and a little maybe not grounded, but I really feel like you know, as you said, helping people, touching people's lives. Um, in any moment in the workday, there's the opportunity to see, to look with the eyes, with sacred eyes, on the work that you're doing, and ask, how am I bringing my whole self to this moment and giving my best. Whatever in whatever dimension that happens to be, uh, to this moment, and you know it's e- certainly easier for me to find a, that that firm persuasion when I'm doing something that's thrilling, you know that that feels great. It feels like it's a big contribution and so on. But I think I'm also cultivating this little extra edge, which makes it easier for me to find that uh, satisfaction in less optimal situations. Um, uh, David said something else. David White said something else. He said, not just what we have done, but who we have become. Can you share a little bit about your evolution uh, from a focus on productivity to a realization of of work as a pilgrimage? How has your work been shaping you lately? And, you know, describe the arc of your emergence into this. Well, John, I have to say, I've never been a person to focus on productivity. That simply wasn't a driver for me, although the closest I can get to it is I tend to be a thorough person. Mm -hmm. And through that thoroughness, I realized that 
I, and you alluded to this, I love all the bits and pieces of almost any task that I'm, uh, that I'm doing. So when you're talking about that sacred lens, that sacred intimacy, there's a lot to be discovered there and there's a lot to be discussed in terms of becoming mm. who you are, your work shaping you. Yeah. So the arc of my emergence was I realized that whatever you're doing, as long as you're in the moment with it and you have a healthy curiosity and you're enjoying it, there's no there's no better, better place to be. So, so it's has has your work been shaping you into someone who's more present? I find my work has shaped me into it and continues to shape me into someone that's in alignment with what I came here to do and who I came here to be. And it feels like an infinity sign. It's a dance. Mm, that's lovely. That's great. And I see for you. Well, my first thought when you asked that was kind of a separation of the word productivity from end result, uh, because we can get caught up in thinking that the only measure of our success or the work that we do is that end result. You know, what product came out of it? What's the how much money did I make from it? You know, whatever. But I think productivity can be satisfaction in, say, a job well done that day. Even though we may have nothing to show anyone else for it, we may know that we checked off seven things on our to-do list when we thought we'd only get around to five. And so that sense of productivity is different than perhaps having some sort of tangible end result to show, but can still be there that can contribute to our sense of having uh, done a good job or having accomplished something in the day. Uh, and and also I, something that you had touched on was it doesn't always have to be something big or grand, uh, you know, because we can find satisfaction. And, and really, this goes to paying more attention not to what others deem would be the the result or would deem the measure or how others will see what success would look like, but to understand what it feels like for us, um, because, you know, the accountant may feel at the end of the day as if they are completely satisfied in doing exactly what they want to be doing by having crunched numbers successfully. And the society would often make fun of something like that. Um, or, you know, they, they might look down upon the janitor, uh, but the janitor may look at having done a good job and feel very satisfied with what they have done or accomplished in that day because they see a clean office or a clean school for kids to come to the next day or something like that. Mm. And so I, I think that that's more indicative of who a person becomes through their work is how they measure their own success rather than worrying about what are others going to see that I have done. Um, and, you know, for me, it, it really, the, the evolution was not about, worrying uh, uh, along the lines of like, you know, how many people am I doing readings for in a day or that kind of thing. The satisfaction on one hand was more about understanding, even if it was just one person, as long as they got what they needed, there was much more uh, satisfaction, fulfillment in that than if I could look back and say, oh, look, I had eight you know clients today. Mm. 
because a lot of people would look at that, and that's how they often will ask, oh, how many readings did you do today? Or how many people do you see in a week? You know, or something like that. And it's like, well, that's not really my focus, and I don't worry about that so much. Um, And I'm more about are they getting what they need from the process that we're engaging in rather than how many have I engaged in? Right, right. No, it's an inter- it's an interesting and uh, and culturally uh, countercultural measure of uh, of success, really. And it's also shaped my evolution in the sense that by embarking on the path of say doing tarot and that kind of thing, it really led to me exploring many more other spiritually based um, studies and explorations and that kind of thing, and has certainly helped to shape who I've become today because of the work that I was doing, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I know for me that the the arc of my of my professional life or, or my career energy has taken me from a very um, bold, ego-driven place to one where my ability to and respect the gifts of others has really gotten is, is blooming and and I like that because it's uh, it's in one sense it's much less lonely uh, and in another sense it's much more I don't know I guess the word might be might be honest you know it's it's less delusional you know it's it's less about the story that I'm telling in my head and more about the facts on the ground and who I'm with and what they have to to share and how that can enrich my life. So so my productivity or my my pilgrimage really from productivity to fulfillment has been a lot about seeing other people more clearly and seeing their contributions uh more clearly. And in some sense uh that's come uh as a result of the limits that I, the things I've learned about myself, and and I want to ask you guys that too. Um, for me, I've I've discovered a lot about myself on this pilgrimage. Uh, one of one thing is that I have these I have limits. I I can't really do everything that I that my mind says I ought to be able to do or I should be doing, and so I have to to start leaning on and asking for support from other people. Um, so that's one of the limits that I've discovered. Have, what have you discovered in your pilgrimages about your limitations or about your passions or, or your purpose? One thing that I recently discovered is that through doing this work as it shapes me, it's made me quiet. So, mm. And it's made me quiet about my work. <laughs> so, so I simply do it. And... I feel fulfilled, and I don't necessarily feel uh, feel like sharing any of it with anybody. That's interesting. I, do you do you have a sense for for why or how it made you quiet? I I feel it's it's more of a contentment. Um, mm. It's more of a connection with my soul, mm-hmm. because really, the only barometer that's important to me and other people are different is. To what degree am I in alignment with what I have, you know, my soul's potential here? And the more I do, the more I do my work, the less everything else just falls away. 
I don't need this, that, or the other thing. The work is enough. It's like a cup is full. And I find myself becoming more and more quiet. So it seems to be becoming more and more sacred. I love that, Mildred Lynn. Thank you so much for sharing that. Hi, C. What have you learned about yourself? Limits, passions, purpose? Well, well, one thing I would say that I think is very similar to what Mildred was saying is that what this is doing, this work has cultivated in me is that sense of stillness, which I think might be my equivalent of her quiet, um, because it's made me come to a place of saying, I do what I can, and then I let it go. So I, I learned, for example, when a person comes for a session, I offer them what it is that the reading has, but once they step outside of that room where the session is happening or that space where the session is happening, then I release responsibility for what happens. It's not on me to somehow feel responsible for what they do with the information. And so it certainly has helped me to learn what it means to not (laughs) cling or grasp Um, And also to let go of, because you used words that I always caution people against, which, you know, there's things that I feel like I should be doing or that I ought to be able to do. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, if you can let go of ought to and should and just do what you can, then and, and release expectation around what the end result should be versus doing what we can and then seeing what comes about as a result. That's really something that I have greatly learned from doing this work. Yeah. Um and and uh, and in some ways similar to Mildred I'm not necessarily quiet about the work that I do, but I've also uh, what I will always say and I think this also goes to the first question that you had asked is when people ask that I say, well, doing tarot or doing whatever work that I'm talking about that I do, I say it's not really what I do, it's simply who I am. Mm. So, you know, offering a a, a insight or reading in a minute talking to someone uh you know in a casual situation not in a formal session to me is just as satisfying but also means it just is there for me to offer and as long as i offer it when the opportunity presents opens or asks itself for it then i know that i'm simply doing what i need to do and that gives me that firm persuasion because it says i know that this is what i am here to do, and therefore I have to accept when the opportunity is offered for me to do that, I simply offer and do that rather than worrying about it being in some particular time, some particular place, you know, telling someone, oh, I, I can't do that right now, but let's make an appointment and, you know, then I'll talk to you about that mm. kind of thing. Yeah. Um, that's that's, And I think that goes to passion and purpose because it says, hey, I mean, I, obviously I'm passionate about what I do, but also understanding it just is my purpose. It's 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 what I'm here to do. Therefore, let me just do it without questioning it, without needing to somehow restrict it to certain times and places versus just being what it is I'm here to do and allow that to be enough and honor that when the opportunity is there for me to fulfill that. Yeah, that's great. So just a, as a, a way of uh, summarizing or wrapping up, um, as you have gone through your your respective evolutions in your work and as you do your work now, does it feel like self-love? And does it feel like self-love all the time? And for the benefit of our audience, when it doesn't feel like self-love, what's a good way to adjust yourself? Now, John, you know I'm a Leo. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, so we know the answer, but please share anyway. <laughs> so it's hard for me not to feel self-love. <laughs> I will tell you that through doing this work, although my tendency is, is self-love, through doing this work, I did notice that I don't have negative conversations with myself, and I'm very compassionate with myself and understanding. So it's more like, okay, you didn't get it right this time. Eh, maybe you'll get it right, right next time. That might sound casual. It's not a casualness. It's more of an acceptance mm-hmm. that I'm on a journey and you're going to get some things right and some things not so right. right. And just that's just the way she goes. And that's what I signed up for. Mm-hmm. So your other part of the question is, and I am in love with my work. I would say that. I find that nothing, it feels enough, nothing feels better. As Hi C was saying, I, I, I'm I, like an everyday energy worker type person. Whatever I run into, if it's in my highest interest to engage and share some inspiration or energetic insights, I do it on the spot and I don't think any more about it. I remember probably about 10 years ago, I was at a hair salon and I was having some process done and I realized there was an opportunity to to help someone and they were receptive to being helped. And there I was basically in the middle of the salon doing my thing. And at that moment, it occurred to me that, no, I don't have to be in an office. I don't have to be anywhere. I just have to be open to offering, as Heisey would say, offering whatever it was I had to give in the moment. So that was kind of a funny little thing. But you had asked, if I did need to adjust myself, how do I do that? And how I do it personally is I quiet myself, connect with my breath, and I sit until the adjustment shows itself. Mm. Lovely. So it goes back to the breath. Great. And hi, C, your thoughts? I think it's self-love when you're able to say, I did what I could do to the best of my ability, and I accept that that's enough. I think it's self-love when you don't compare yourself to other people. I think it's self-love when you do what you do for no other reason so that you don't say, well, I only do this if it pays this much, if I'm going to get to this, if the result is going to be this, if this person is then going to meet my expectation of what should happen if I do this. Um, Because self-love means I'm going to come back to understanding why I do this, and know that I do this simply because I know it's what is right for me rather than what anyone else says maybe I should do or I am using some other external barometer or measure to determine when, where, how, or what I do. Uh, So that to me is, and it's also self-love when you say, this is what I really want to be doing. And again, I'm going to say, if that is somebody who feels like I am the most amazing salesperson ever and I have a sales job where I'm really excelling and doing well, that's just as important. That's, that falls into this just as much as you know somebody who is doing some sort of mystical, magical, spiritual work in some way. So I, I want to encourage people to recognize that Self-love comes by accepting this is what I do, this is what I do well, and I'm doing it fully and to the best of my ability, regardless of what it is, rather than what anyone or society may say or how they may label it. 
uh, and thinking that I either don't measure up for some reason or that I'm not doing something quote unquote important compared to what other people say are, are more important kind of jobs or types of work to be doing in the world. Thank you, I see. That's great. And for me, it really does come down to um, if self-love, when I recognize it as a pilgrimage, right, not as an object, an exercise in productivity, because I'm not always going to be productive. I'm not always going to be successful according to some measure of productivity. But I can always harvest something about my interaction with the world from the way I exercise my energy in the world. So thank you very much to my co-hosts, Heisey and Mildred Lynn. I enjoyed your insights on this topic, and I wish you a lovely experience of your careers. Thank you, John. At Firefly Willows L-I-V-E, we're working hard to be your trusted source for fun, enlightening, and heart-centered information and community. And we're passionate about the art of transformative media, the new leading edge of communication in our highly connected, media-rich world. If you're passionate about facilitating change and you have gifts or ideas you'd like to share, come join us, host a show, or be a guest, or connect us to an amazing speaker or teacher whose message is too good to miss. There's always room for courageous, knowledgeable changemakers, inspired artists, and new ideas. Let us know you're interested send an email to info at fireflywillows.com. We're Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E, helping you find and shine your inner light. Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carousella. Loving 101. And I'm not talking about a first semester course. No, actually, this one is for the local crowd here in Northern California. I was driving to Ecstatic Dance a recent Sunday. It was rainy and gray. Funny, you know, we've been in a drought for the last four years here in California, and I do welcome the rain, but I really miss the lightness and warmth of that California sun. So I wasn't exactly begrudging the rain, but I wasn't delighted by it either. In fact, I was a little irritable. Not sure exactly why, but I was. And I was running late, so I didn't get to pick up my customary coffee. And I was supposed to be setting up an altar at the entranceway, so I was stressed about that. And ten minutes into my drive, I realized I'd forgotten to bring a table, which I was hoping to drape with a blanket and use as part of the setup. So I was frazzled and frustrated. Not what I like my Sunday morning meditation before dance to be. I crossed over from I-280 onto 101, heading south. Now, everybody around here loves 280. It's listed as one of the most beautiful interstates in the country. And it is beautiful. I I love to share it with first-time visitors to California, to the Bay Area, just because it's a highway and it's it's beautiful. (laughs) That's that's what we have here in California, stuff like that. (laughs) Beautiful highways. But I wasn't on 280. I was on 101. 101. Grim, concrete, flat, industrial. 101. The sky matched the pavement. The rain was cold. Animal Collective was playing on my iPod, and somehow it wasn't on shuffle, so I kept hearing one strange, long, dissonant track after another. Honestly, I was ready to drive myself right into the bay. And then I thought, hey, wait a minute. 
this is not how I want this to be. What if I could experience all of this as not irritation, but as love? Now, I believe that the universe is made from love. Made made of love, literally. So, as I'm fond of doing, I said, okay, if that's true, then the rain, the gray, the concrete, and animal collective are all loving me right now. How can I experience this all as love? And I thought of an experience from last summer. In fact, it was the summer solstice. I was in Utah. It was mid-afternoon, and the sun was bright and hot. I had been indoors most of the day, but I felt this strange need to get outside under the sun. I drove up to my familiar hiking spot. The temperature must have been about 100. I parked the car in my usual spot away from the crowds and got out. The sun struck the top of my head immediately, like a hammer. I've managed somehow over the years to misplace most of the hair on the top of my head, and despite my best efforts to find it, and in particular because I love being outside under the sun, I remain quite bald up there. And I I could have donned a hat or a bandana, but something inside me said, no, just be present. So I stepped slightly away from the car, loosened my clothing a bit for the heat, and directed the top of my head, my face, my attention to the sun. I could feel the heat. I could feel not just the temperature of the air around me, but the radiant heat from the sun. I could feel the rays driving down onto me with a kind of resolve and force. It was hot. I kind of hurt it was so hot. And I said, Now, wait, I know, I know the sun loves me. I know it. That energy that it pours out so generously in our direction to be soaked up by Mother Earth is precious stuff. I also know that while I'm clothed in this flesh and blood instrument I call a body, I'm actually a dancing resonant signal, pure energy organized by a mysterious principle called my soul. The energy from the sun is no different from that. In fact, in a very real way, it's food for me. It's what, ultimately, I take into my body to nurture it, to make it grow, help it repair itself, and remain this handy observation post for this spirit having this organic human experience. So this sun, this sun must be loving me right now. I'd contemplated something similar before. I was, and remain, fascinated by the claims of the breatharians, who claim that they can get all the nourishment they need from breathing. No food or water. At some level, of course, this is hard to believe. But on another level, a much deeper energetically focused level, it's maybe not so absurd. I mean, at a base level, we exhale water vapor as a byproduct of cellular respiration. So in theory, we could recycle that water instead of just dumping it out. Plus, there's water vapor in the air, which we take in in lungfuls, six times a minute or so. Furthermore, much of the water we take in as part of our diet, is so that we can break down carbohydrates from complex to simple sugars, the hydration phase of harnessing energy. But at the end of the day, it's just about harnessing energy. So maybe we don't need so much of that water if we're getting energy 
from another place. And where would those breatharians be getting their extra energy? Well, the logical explanation, such as it is, logical explanation would be from the sun. Since it's the source of the vast, vast majority of energy that gets deployed to and harnessed by this planet. So why not cut out the middleman, those presumptuous cousins, the plants, that do the photosynthesis thing, and take straight from the source? I mean, they do it, right? And what do they do with it? They create carbohydrates, which we then break down into sugars that feed our ribosomes, the organelles in our cells that are our cellular furnaces. So we can do cellular respiration, ATP to ADP reactions, the little miracle of biochemistry in which there are tiny, tiny, tiny raging fires in every one of our cells. But if those fires are so tiny, 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 why would it not be possible to apply the same amount of energy from another source? A source other than that carbohydrate-sugar-adenosine-triphosphate connection. Why not just apply the right amount of energy from the sun itself? Well, Easy to say, but maybe not so easy to do. I mean, we evolved this complex food chain and metabolic biochemistry to essentially do a step-down transformation, an impedance matching between the sun and our omnivorous non-photosynthesizing bodies. You can't take a high-voltage transmission line directly into your television. It's not a match. But, wait. I had layers and layers of body cells through which to filter the direct energies of the sun. Some of those energies would stop right at the first layer. Light reflected off my pate, forehead, and face. Some of those energies would be absorbed, some of the visible light and a bunch of the infrared. And some would pass deeper, the shorter wavelengths jimmying and jockeying past the hard-breaking longer ones to slip deeper into my tissues. And wasn't it all just energy anyways? At some point in its downshifting and dissipating, as it got absorbed by my tissues, it would hit that magic threshold of being somehow useful to myself. Perhaps not as organized, not as hierarchically managed as it typically would be, but definitely meeting the requirement of utility. So I focused on that. I said, let this energy enter into my body and let my body respond to it as if it were a loving gift to my metabolism. As if it were there to be co-opted and leveraged by my biology, my cells, and my soul's intention. And the more I felt into it, the more I thought about it, the more I realized that my own energy signature, the resonant standing wave that ultimately has manifested itself in my homeostasis, might have tools other than what I learned in biochemistry to bring to bear on the problem. It's called constructive interference and entrainment in electrical engineering, so might I be able to bring more than supplication to this process? Might I actually have some long, unused, dusty tools for just this job? Why not? So that's what I did. I loved the energy pouring into me as a gift, specifically from a loving giver, specifically designed to be harvestable, 
not necessarily knowing exactly how, but designed to be harvestable in just the right way. I spent probably 30 minutes under the sun like that, maybe 45. The midday summer solstice sun. And I hadn't had much of a tan on top to start with. Now, you know how when you've been out in the sun too long, you kind of get that feeling? That feeling of extra heat and tenderness on your exposed skin? Yeah, that one. I didn't get it. I didn't get it at all. Not at all. I was hot, for sure. But I didn't, pardon the parochial pun, feel the burn at all. And I did not get sunburned at all. No painful scalp the next day. No no flaky skin. Barely even a tan, to be honest. So I got the feeling that I had absorbed the energy in a different way. That which might have been painful or damaging turned out to be just another gift from a generous universe once I recognized it as such, stopped resisting it, and figured out how to receive it constructively. Which brings us back to US 101, sliding down the western edge of San Francisco Bay, damp, gray, unrelenting, harsh, on a morning in late February. What if I could receive this stimulus as a gift? What if 101 was loving me at this very moment? How would I have to tune my receptors and prepare my soul's energy signature to receive this gift? And Animal Collective too. what hidden gift did this soundtrack have for me? Turns out the process was fairly straightforward. Instead of judging the stimuli to be harsh, bad, noxious, whatever, because it didn't match what I wanted... What if I accepted it for what it was? Asking something to be something it's not and then judging it for not being what you want or expect it to be is kind of dumb. 101 is not 280. Rain is not sunshine. Animal Collective is not Crosby, Stills, and Nash. So, taken as gifts, not disappointments, what could I do with them? Well, First, I had to drop my resistance to what they were and let go of my expectations. That took a minute. Then, I used the stimuli I was receiving as a template. Where in my body would this kind of stimulation actually be vitalizing, enriching, even fun or pleasurable? That, that took a little longer. I didn't find the stimulation to be fun or pleasurable but I was able to pattern match it against some congestion in my breathing and some stiffness in my hips and shoulders. And I used the music and the concrete to effectively tenderize and the rain to irrigate and further soften these spaces. I know, that sounds kind of like a non-sequitur, maybe even irrational, but with a little practice being attentive to one's sensate awareness I find it's actually possible to do stuff like that. And I took deep breaths and I let it all happen. I was able to harness a gray, concrete stretch of familiar roadway to help revitalize myself. I was able to receive love. But that's not the end of the story, actually. Maybe even not the most important part. What happened next was that I realized 
I had been being given love and that I wanted to send some back in gratitude. I started loving 101. Loving 101. I looked again at this now stalwart, sturdy, dependable companion that was allowing my lovely, supportive car to take me to an activity I deeply valued. I felt a kind of fondness and stewardship towards it. I felt how it must so often receive just the opposite. Rejection, disdain, impatience, frustration. And yet, millions of people travel this amazing stretch of infrastructure every day. Every day. It's that reliable. It's that generous. And you can say, well, it's not generous. It's the materials and the engineering and the maintenance and all that stuff that makes it work at all. Okay, that's okay. But all that stuff that we just mentioned, collect it all. Put it in a bin. Label it US 101. Let that collection of energies and efforts and organizing principles and laws of physics be US 101. What would happen if we all, every one of us, every day, began loving 101? Loving the way it carries us so reliably. Loving its offer of speed. Marveling at the way it flexes and changes and expands with time to meet our needs, even though it's made of concrete. What if we offered it our tender compassion whenever it's burdened by the denser energies of heavy traffic and frustrated humans? What if we blessed it and wished it well when we exited and welcomed it with a nurturing hello when we hopped on? We'd be passing each other in our cars, delighted to be in the embrace of this majestic gift. We'd be smiling and tender and generous with one another because being in the presence of such a magnificent being would be a delight. We'd receive love and give love and share love and have love in abundance on the highway. We'd find it beautiful. I can almost guarantee that the trees and grasses along the way would thrive. I can almost guarantee we all would. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carasella. Up next is a new style of segment for me here at Convergence. It's called A Voice from the Ether. I find that in my wanderings, I come across folks who are interesting for no reason other than that they're living an adventurous, awakening life. And I want to share their voices and their stories, too. So, literally, out of nowhere, I'd like to introduce you to Blaze. Meeting him was just the start of the magic. I was enjoying some time at the beach the other day, collecting some sea critters. Not exactly jellyfish, but diaphanous, transparent little sails. I'm not sure what they are exactly, but they'd washed up on the beach in abundance and, and had dried in the sun into delicate, transparent paper tricorns. I thought they'd be cool to weave into an art project somehow, so I began to collect them in my empty coffee cup. I was reaching for one, and the wind blew it just out of my reach. I followed it, only to have the wind take it out of my grasp again. I retreated and picked a few more. And again, one just out of my reach, taken by the wind, drew me. 
This happened three or four times, each time drawing me away from the beach towards the bluff. Okay, I said to the universe, so you want me to go up the bluff instead of back along the beach? Okay, so I climbed the bluff, looking for some indication of why I was being pulled in this direction. At the top, the view was beautiful, and there was a little foot trail back to my car. I didn't see any birds guiding me or critter bones or mushrooms or flowers that would have been a signal that this was why I was being drawn up the bluff, so I just enjoyed the walk back to my car. On the way, I realized I was making much faster time walking on the trail instead of on the beach. I got back to my car, and there was an older gent with his cutie pie dog in the parking lot getting ready to leave. And I imagine if I had walked along the sand, I would have missed him. He approached me as I was getting into my car. The conversation started about just how amazing the ocean and the beach and California Route 1 are. And it turns out, he's a neighbor. We continued to talk and, well, to make a long story only slightly shorter, I'd like to introduce you to Blaze. We recorded our spontaneous conversation on location at his cool and eclectic home right here in Montero. It's been so wide open. So I always is a broad brush stroke to it all. There's not any, I don't def, want to find myself in any one category, you know, pigeonhole myself. You know, and, and it's not. Which is and, fun not to have to, I don't, I don't have to and won't. And, and when you recognize that in other people and see that, you know, like how am I going to describe a, a certain character like my son? It's all very, too very quickly, right? I, but but you can recognize that there's color to be had in the fact that I can't do it. Yeah, all the, all the more wonder because of it, it, it varies. It varies so. And to that, who, who, for again, it's being in in the in the uh, the four agreements, you know, about being domesticated. Wow, right, all right. prescribed to those things that are set in. That so, are set tell me, so, so tell me the story according to those things. Tell me the story. Tell me the story of your ability or inability, success or unsuccess, and fitting the archetype that I expect you to fit. Let me, let me force you into my cultural worldview and then judge you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, it is. It is just that and beyond at that point, because then it's so caught up in it that there's no room for. You're not even awake to the fact that you're doing it. You're not even awake. Right. right. Well, right. Well, that's that's the (laughs) so unconscious. It's so. Yeah. Yeah. We don't all we can't all uh, think of, you know, when you say something, how is that going to affect somebody else? But the business of self-actualizing takes that on because you're saying this. The way I'm going to say, I mean, you don't have to be thought out every single moment because it's hard to do that. Well, but and, just in, ah, but here's the interesting thing, right? Mm. And this and this actually relates to something that was really powerfully present for me um, when I when I recognized that I didn't actually feel things. I thought I was a very feely person. I wasn't. I was actually really really good at taking one sample of the environment and then spinning it into a story in my head instead of staying sensate to my experience. So I have this developed this really powerful analytical capacity, but I was really underdeveloped in terms of the ability to be in the moment and feel what was happening. Yeah. The, 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 as it's been put to me before, I've, listen, if you have to think about being in the moment, 
you're not. So do you have right. to go into white? We don't live in going into white where everything else is then, unless it's through meditation. You one can meditate and do yoga. Stuff. No, but see the but the beauty. Literally, just in the when you're when these pit stops that I've made with people is if without e- even pondering that when the I mean just the other day an old German couple and they wanted to be so and I can feel wanted to be so loved and cared for right. now an old German right. couple thinking about they want to be loved and cared for because we were out there alone it was a little windy they, the day although it was still the ocean still beautiful and all Yeah. by the way I have about what you're, we're doing here Maybe it's just the way I way it is that I present that energy, but I get to hear stories. <laughs> I, whether it be they just came from India on this beach, visiting family, right, right. But they got to go back to Colorado because they missed their dogs. But now there was Maya and coming into our on the beach, yeah, mid yeah. mid um, week. Relatives from Los Gatos, they're having their picnic. Come join, come with. Oh my, oh. Well, Maya started that from day one when I when we adopted her, and right. that's a whole storyline, which is the most profound, one of the most profound of all for me. But I'm telling you, that brought the humanness of strangers making the human connection and then wanting to explore together that energy of where they were in this world, what they feel, and what they miss. And embracing a complete stranger, which is no longer a stranger. So so what does it take to do that? What does it take to do that? There was nothing to do it. Well, but you have to be... It was you have being, to have no resistance to it. Well, there it. was no resistance. Well, first of all, what leads the way is because I went, I don't, you, you know, here in, when you're walking through the Fijis and you're down the street and you have children in the parochial schools, you're a little dresses barefoot and the grandmas right, and right, they're going right. and they're smiling and you right. get the bula bula. It's, it's, there's no suspicion. So societal... No suspicion. Island island uh, life doesn't take that, and I'm um, too that people don't know every. In other words, you might don't know that old person over there but really. There's a presumption. There's a presumption of love and caring. There is without necessarily the presumption. It's just I mean we can't help but no. But I mean it's sort of implicit in the culture. Kind of implicit. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of built. It's it's part of a cultural thing that wait a yeah. minute how can you yeah. you'll be alienated if you're going to be if you're going to be a, you know turn right, everybody right. out so it's, so it's part of the fabric it emerges fabric. it emerges out of the fabric yeah. of the culture but it's then not even spoken it's all it's the automatic right but here right. okay so let me ask you something that island vibe that you just talked about yeah it's not spoken about no so it's not verbal it's not there. it's not verbal there. Right, so it's not verbal cognitively for them either. So, how do they communicate it? I suggest that they communicate it through how they feel in any given moment. There's a feeling dimension to the cultural propagation of that island vibe. Yes, that it, is nonverbal. It, it demonstrated itself time and time and time again while we were there, and it wasn't. And two, the curiosity of you being a visitor. Is there? Sure. They want to know sure. by and 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 the feast that were set out that we sat at the table with the people who own the place and rented their car to us. Don't go into town to get the car because here, it's it's like am I? This is so surreal. Or the five women who were fish the day we were leaving were there at the reef and had a bucket, and I had a rough night the night before. I couldn't sleep well and all. It was just a. 
I, it just was off. And and I, so I walked down about seven in the morning, and there's five women out there, and they have a bucket. I walked down to see what they've been fishing, they're doing on the reef, right below the resort where we were at. And I, okay, little resort. Yeah. And beautiful yeah. colors and the island vibe, the flowers not, and the hair, not and the North whole American island vibe, vibe, the whole yeah. the whole yeah. deal with it, you know, and the veranda and the beach, and, and there they were. And they all about looked up at the sun. When I walked over, I said, oh, what do you have there? And they pull up this octopus. Wow. A woman pulled up the octopus, and she looked at me, and she said, would you like this? Turns out that was a catch of the day, because after I left, I walked back up the, the path, and they were leaving. They were all leaving with the octopus back down to their village. Oh, wow. Would you like this? So... The storyline of coming first into the islands, not not the Hawaiian Islands, because uh, the Hali has really done them in. But 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 it's coming back into the historical that the Tongans are teaching the Hawaiians. The storyline and my my connection with people there, uh, with all that, is really very unique because of a book that I was that I sent to the islands that completely blew blew the, the, uh, Jake's wife out of the water. I'm I'm stepping ahead of myself. I want to hear about the octopus. About the octopus. So, oh well, no. I thank them for their beautiful thought, but I was that I'm I'm leaving and I don't have a place to to to. No, do it. But I didn't want to make them feel bad about it. Says, but we're leaving on the plane today, pretty soon. But thank you, How and that's all I could. And so yeah, I went back, and then they were walking back down the road with their catch yeah. for the day because yeah. it was a bit of a stretch from where we were coming up the road. I said, "Where is their village? Oh man, he's with her." I mean, I had time in the Fijis alone, leaving Christina on the beach to go, when I was in the Fijis, to go up uh, a mountain to find, looking for the uh, honey eater uh, birds, they, they, but they bark like dogs. Uh, wow. So I, I traced up four miles up, up to the Fijian mountains to, to and, uh, and where there's more. Uh, but I was there to, you know, to um, just be there. Christina always wanted to go to New Zealand. Oh, yeah, I'd like to go to New Zealand. Always wanted to go to New Zealand. So yeah. not go back to Europe, not go to Africa, not go to Canada. We've been here, done that. We've been around. We've been in Mexico a million times, been in Central America, laid out, stayed out in Costa Rica. And she wanted to go to New Zealand. So, man, in 84, up pops a ticket, a six-month ticket out for to go from L.A. to Tahiti, spend some time in Tahiti, then to the Cooks, then to Fiji, New Zealand, Australia. You couldn't go back to the same island group. You can stay as long as you want on each one. Oh, wow. Right up into Australia. And each one was a journey onto itself. How long did you stay in each place? We in each, About um, three weeks. Different, wow. different. We didn't do the full six. But, you know, after time, you want to go home. There's something about that. Yeah. The English found it out after two weeks in, in, in swinging on hammocks. Now what are we going to do? I mean, to get a full six months would have been sweet. A thousand dollars. Yeah, that's a that good deal. It was just you couldn't pass yeah, it out. Yeah, that's great. And we, you know, we lived economically where we stayed. We stayed in some nice places, swam in those places, and but it was a it was more the, about the people. Yeah. Than than uh, swimming in the water. Was it different from place to place? Each place, Tahiti was 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 completely. Uh, yeah, let's talk about Tahiti. Taken by that was our first landing. Ah, okay. So you're so you're coming out of where? Coming out of L.A. L.A. Eight hour eight and a half hours later, land, landing in Pepeete. Uh huh. 
come out the airport. There she stood, the cab driver. So coming out the airplane, we were, yeah, it was a bit weary. Yeah, sure. And there's the ukulele hours. players at four in the morning <laughs> as you pass them by. <laughs> oh, please, I say to myself. <laughs> I mean, it's not that I'm new to the world, but this is going to be okay. <laughs> South Pacific, man, here we come. Right. Or here we are. And so we get ourselves to the airport, get checked out. Outside we come. Now it's pretty quiet out there. Everybody, we seem to be almost the last ones coming out. I don't know. There we were, and there she was. She puts her hand out and does a nice gentle wave in our way. As we walk towards her cab, she identifies herself as, she goes, Hello, I'm Big Mama Netta. And this is my young husband, Joe. But (laughs) Joe is sleeping. Well, Big Mama Netta was of considerable size. Didn't bother me any. I just wondering, cab's big enough. How was Joe? Was Joe, Joe a small Joe guy? Sleeping and he was young, younger than her. <laughs> so she says, so where are you staying? I says, well, we don't have reservations, but at the hotel up near Pepeate uh, for the night, and then we'll head out to Morea, uh the next day, maybe. And she says, Oh, that place. Oh, he's probably sleeping. I go, well, okay, well, let's go find out. We get there. She checks. She goes to check. He's sleeping. And the next thing uh, that uh, followed was, well, listen, you come and stay with us in our compound. Oh, she prefaced uh, while we were driving to her place that we should be comfortable and possibly to make us feel that she's really legit. She says, I'm Big Mama Netta and uh, I'm Marlon Brando's cab driver. Wow. I looked at Christina. I said to, quietly to Christina, the journey begins, Christina, again. <laughs> Unbeknownst to us, unexpected, and we don't have any words to say except here we are. We, we, we woke up three hours later, and there's young husband Joe out in the outdoor kitchen because that's where they are. They have a refrigerator with ice. They don't have any indoor, that indoor kind of, Power, so they have outdoor kitchens where you live because it's the right, right. Your living room. And I look at the Quonset hut and I see these large ropes over the at the ends with huge bolt cable holding hold holding down to keep everybody safe during typhoon. (laughs) Big Mama Netta came, but we we smelled uh, the French the French um, bakery. It turns out to be around the just a few blocks up. Smell the coming. We've got to go get the bakery you know we told joe we're going to the bakery joe so we're at home with the fam the grandmothers the grandparents everybody's around in the quonset huts with the family we get to the bakery we get back watermelon was being served up it was very orange in color wow okay and so tasty so sweet and had our breakfast and then big mama netta says we're going out to the island Morea. Uh, she says, well, maybe you'll stay another night. So she took us around the island and up to her relatives. Now we're getting up into the mountains. We drop off at the, the first house, and we meet her uh, son-in-law, who was the head of the French police on the island. He was the big boy. Unfortunate, though, Two days later, he had been robbed at his home. Oh, no. <laughs> the story continued. Of course, 
here we are, Christina. Anyway, and the next day off to the island of Morea, but it was only there. And, and then she would meet us again when we came back a couple, two, three days later. So we had set a date, if I recall. Had it wrong, didn't know it then. Anyway, we're on the wharf, standing with Tahitians who were going, all Tahitians, going of different ages with their luggage, and they're going to get on the boat and head out about an hour across to the island of Morea. And it was me and Christina and nobody out. There weren't tourists, nothing. So I'm on the wharf in place so I can get on the boat. And I, we got our stuff. And I felt this very strange, don't use the word vibe much, but that energy was very omnipresent when it came to the feeling. And I had read about Tahiti and the French. And what, 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 just to preface this, when you go into the, into the marketplaces of any place in third world in particular, you'll, what's about energy and what's about culture, it's all there. And that's where it's all, where you want to know about things. Go to the market. You're in the marketplace. Right. The, the, the hub, the place. And uh, it was missing in Tahiti. In Pepete, it was, even on the lorries that we took around town, felt amiss. A People got on the lorry, got off the lorry. Now, unlike the other island groups where you have the connection, you felt the connection. Even if you didn't speak, you felt the, you felt yeah, that energy. Right, you felt right. that, that softer movement. Mm-hmm. In Tahiti, it felt I felt the edge. Huh? Not because, and, and of course, coming from what Big Mama Netta had put out to us, all well and good, but. I, so I felt this it was on an easy feeling didn't quite because the French still dominated certain aspects of, of the culture oh, so this is the French influence that's very much so unlike the other island groups you don't find it there not in the Cooks not in the Fijis even though the English were there other than the English language spoke uh, you don't find that in the other groups through the archipelago hmm. the influence is not as didn't get into the into the bloodstream so to speak but Tahiti just, uh, I read a novel years back called Two Came by Sea, Two Frenchmen that just ruined things in Tahiti. <laughs> an historical fact. And there, there were characters of this nature. This is interesting, but when I, I'm, that story is now even more, it speaks volumes of this thing that, I'm, that seems a miss here in a way. Of this. I, didn't, I had yet to know what it was to cross the South Pacific to get a better feel for things. Right. But, it, you, but you sensed something was not... Blissful. It wasn't quite, yeah, it was out of sync. I couldn't identify with it. It's just that it was, a, it was an estranged feeling mm-hmm. to that of the, 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 the smile of the cooks or the, the, the sing-song uh, boy, uh, the children in the Fijis mm. or the booming voice of the Fijian man who corrected me on my faux pas. <laughs> but that's another story. <laughs> <clears throat> but yeah, that was... So we got to Morea... And we got about the island, and we had our time there in Morea, and got to see, and got on a little Vespa motor scooter. Of course, we got two flats. We called back to the place when we finally got to a phone, which was almost impossible. We had until somebody helped us, and because why don't we have on this little island of Morea a spare on our Vespa? Oh, the answer was simple: people steal those tires. <laughs> Hi. Okay, it's island time. Right. We'll wait for the guy to come with a tire. But when we got back, Big Mama Netta was at, wasn't at the airport. 
we had heard by other cab drivers that she was waiting for us the day before, so our timing was off. Oh, we got back to our place where we were staying. She called us, came and got us. <laughs> wow. Wow. The next day when we were leaving, or the day thereafter we were leaving, we were at the airport because she of because Catholicism really ran through the islands a lot. Yeah. The missionaries, yeah. the Mormons, the Seventh Day, they did talk about tap dance. Oh, feed rum to the natives so they'll pearl dive, just like the Native Americans. Same thing, and 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 180, 200 foot dives for the pearl. That led us lend itself to this book that I sent to. To the islands, which was an incredible journal, a, a story, and written in '22 by a Sausalito writer. Hmm. Oh, interesting! All about you couldn't get out of a university. Sent to this woman in a golden moment, as it were, to the right person. After the years I had an embossed leather Pacific Atoll's book, told all of the Marquesas. The why was it so timely, and who, to whom did you send it? I sent it to a woman in the islands who presently or for many years now has been recording Hawaiian island old folk music mm-hmm. teaching this and her studio is is her husband's studio is Jake Rohr's studio and Jake used to manage Creedence Clearwater Revival an old band and people I was connected to in the years past it, not important but Jake is there with in the compound with his with his family, his mother was there, his sister is there, his brother's been there and back and forth. and So they have a music studio and she does this music. Well, they came to visit California and to see my dear friend Sheldon up in, who for 65 years now, we're in constant contact. He's up in Sebastopol and we go back a long ways, a lot of history. He lived in the islands. Jake's his dear friend. We run, we run the course from childhood forward whole array of things interesting Uh, so I didn't know that all I knew is that Jake's wife was Jake's wife was um, doing this music they sent me tapes I had heard that Jake they'd come back to California every year from the islands um, just to get about he loves the redwoods Mm -hmm. I sent him books on the enduring giants and he wrote me back a beautiful letter so two years later, they were coming back to California, and Sheldon, my dear friend, Jake's dearest friend, and my came came down to stay over the weekend. Jake showed up with his trailer. Um, so they stayed overnight, and they met Christina, and they saw our life here, and she was quietly overwhelmed. But we talked of Polynesia, right. our time out a little bit. Mm-hmm. So. I have this book that I, I said to be cherished, and who better than her? This book was so so incredible because it gave it, you, again, you couldn't go to the university to get the information, the story of what you were getting from the man who lived there through the years and, and writing, where the narrative or those of the Native Americans had had uh, chroniclers of the time. Right. The aboriginals right. of Australia didn't. Right. And as far as the island peoples were concerned, this one book was one that I sent to her and she wrote back in two words, said it all. She says, I opened that book. It was a palpable, it was a palpable enchantment. Nice. Oh, wow. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So when I wrote to her, I says, it was as if, to, I says, it was a golden moment 
that you received this book. It felt like a golden moment that you was you, his wife, to get this. She had gone to the Marqueses with her husband, with, excuse me, with her father. So she studied the Marquesian history and loving it as she went to a tribal villager. Her father was in the armed forces on the islands when she was a young person. I guess she's in her, seven, in her early 70s now. Mm-hmm. As a young woman, she had taken to the history of the, living on the islands with her father, taken to the, taken to the history little did I know she gets this she goes to Marquesas the tribesman who is a tattoo takes her up and the old fashioned tat tat that he gave her with the application wow was given of the Marquesian tattoo on her inner thigh and she said that I was there with my thigh over this native's leg while he was giving me the tribal tat so I send her this book and she's blown out of the water the reading is really incredible it's a nice thick leather bound golden balls with the, with a the article of the man's passing out of the out of Sausalito out of the local paper uh, but the book leaves there in 1922 and I think he passed away in Sausalito in I guess in the 60s or 70s that book came to me out of the Berkeley flea market uh, I had a whole collection of great books which I've always yeah. I'd go to his little section I go natural history ooh the renaissance men of their times going into the into the world bringing sometimes taking their wives and yeah. they're all the rigors what do we know from <laughs> we think we have it our electricity goes out on us we have anarchy about about big mama netta when yeah, so does that, did, that, did that end? Well, it ended with, at the end, at the time that we were now heading out to the Cook Islands and we'd be leaving, she saw us off to the airport. And because of the, I was saying before, because of the religious, all the religious aspects, sometime before she saw us, a number of months before, she had been in California and Seventh Day was taking her on uh, the yeah, tours okay. through, mm-hmm. uh, and the California tours and, and, so, so she was, she was she with was the group and she came days. back but she didn't talk of, she let us know that she had been there and doing that but she didn't speak of any there was nothing of religiosity that she wanted to talk about to us except at the very time we were leaving the airport she was putting conch shells over a, a, around our necks and she asked she said very politely she says all I wish for you is that when they come knocking you listen that was easy <laughs> Because we left the street here, there was through the years the House of Reaffirmation, where priests and nuns would come and in their dress clothes, they'd walk to the beach. They're trying to get back more into identifying with God, and it, where they would fit in with it all within the church and outside with it all. So they came to this House of Reaffirmation, getting stronger ties with it all, and walking to the beach. Walk past the garden here, nuns and Father Father Henry from Oregon. Great chats with him. He'd come into the garden. Right, have, right, right. And one day on the street, I had just happened to have the book of Darwin in my hand. I don't know what it was doing in my hand. And and uh, one of the uh, sisters passed by on the street. And, oh, beautiful garden. And she had been here for quite some time. Sometimes they say for, wow, months if not a couple of years. For quite some time. And Henry was here for quite some time, I recall. And they take their walks and... So I was up on the street, and I had my book up there. She's walking down the street. She, 
Oh, how are you today? All right, sister, fine. Yourself, fine. So, and she saw the book. Oh. Mm-hmm. She says, uh, yeah, she says, before I went to the Coventry, but I was working my way towards that. She says, I picked the book up and I opened it up. And the next thing out of her mouth really was very interesting because she said, I lo- opened it up and I had to close it. It was too compelling. <laughs> Man, the same thing with my sister when she was in Italy. She had gone. She graduated high school and then wanted to go see the being the artist and all the graphic artist and uh, the illustrator and a painter then. And and she went. She was in Italy and she wanted to see the David. She's uh, there's these nuns on the street selling crosses. And there was a time where you would take um, a religious could be religious it could be anything, put it under epoxy on a table. Yeah. like a map and yeah. whatnot, but they were yeah. selling crosses with the crucifixion and gilded and all and uh, from a whatever they took the picture from and onto the cross. Every piece of like ebony, very dark wood. And they were selling them. My sister was walking about and she was, oh, beautiful, lovely. And she's looking at the wood as well, turns it over, dark side of the cross, and uh, she says, oh, what an enriched wood, how dark and beautiful. And the nun said to her, hmm, possibly this is where the truth lies. That's <laughs> <laughs> a profound shit, man. Get back. Are you kidding me? Wow, from what a, an answer. <laughs> I had one of my own, though, that was sort of interesting. When we were running a heroin addiction program, up in San Francisco, and uh, and so we went to a meeting one evening, and uh, we had to go to the meeting because we were being called upon. The probation people uh, didn't have uh, a speaker, and they called upon us. We have to go down to the public library and look at 60 faces of people busted for marijuana. So we're to speak. The director speaks. He says his thing about our program, which was a silly program, or where we had come from about the heroin addiction program, and people want to know about that. My turn. Oh, boy. I got a kick under the table for this one. But it was the truth, at least from the perspective of an addict. My cousin was an addict, a heroin addict, from age 13 forward to age maybe 44, 46, maybe 42. He died. Uh, Life of that. And there were 120 eyes on us. At which the question came from that a person to say, "What is it like for the for the addict? What's that feeling like when they shoot up? What do they get from that? I mean, that's so powerful." Was the word used? And I took it from there, and I said, "It best described to me." I said, "As as told to me by a man who was addicted for many years, it's like kissing the mouth of God." And that. But I said, this is what what's driving that it's such a powerful drug that when one gets that no feels that notion of it all. Yeah, so once you once you feel that, you should have no reason to want to feel anything else. Anything else. else. That's where you. But it's artificial, and we have to let that be. But it was so. I mean, you can't. It was. Whew. I had a good liaison between me and the probation department. 
I don't know that it went south after that, but our, our we we didn't last long in that uh, with our diversion thing. We got out. I got out of mental health. I was at ninety war ninety two at San Francisco. Paris got me out of there. He did. Okay. Why? What was? Why did you leave mental health? The reason the reason of change came, and again serendipitous, but all stemming from that I believed that the canvas that I needed to to paint needed to be a broader than that. And I felt confined and could not make, could not make headway uh, and make any inroads to uh, what I saw was nothing short of putting Thorazine in people and putting them in that state and, so, do, and doing tear-off slips for the city. Right. Not so, interesting. So it, was, it wasn't interesting because it was perfunctory treatment and nobody was getting better. Right. Well, you see it more relegated to Mary, you know, out the door, back in the door. More of a merry-go-round kind right. of a... Um, uh, same arguments presented, same mo- modalities driven by whatever modalities to get the patient okay in some ways. Started earlier for me when I was doing a little work up in uh, up uh, just spotty up in Nor- um, Navarro State Beach, California. A friend was working up there with children, tough ones. I mean, tough in a sense where, in part, at a summer uh, place, uh, children would go. Would well, some year round, I was up there in part of the summer to see children where had organic, real dysfunction, brain dysfunctional stuff going on. That was part of their their genes, yeah. and others that were abused. Yeah, tough, tough to be tough to be in. But art therapy seemed to be the best place for it all uh-huh, for me. Interesting. But yeah. aside from that, it was just the time wasn't there for it. I didn't have the time. I mean, it just I was it was spotty. Time it wasn't. I was there and oh this I'll do this for a little bit, but it wasn't there to be done. The, for a, a full time job you, or even did a part you get time. a sense that the art therapy was actually helping those kids? You know, it always does. It, 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 that is that to me is some of the most powerful of all therapies. You know, yeah. It, it just speaks. It speaks for itself. It always speaks for itself. It's not. It's. It has to be in, inclusive with and coalescing with all all other modalities and whatever. Yeah, sure. It's, a comp- uh, yeah, yeah, it's, a, it's uh, part yeah, of a comprehensive yeah, treatment yeah. plan, but it's pretty compelling part. Very much so. Always so compelling. Especially with, and for those who you know are not going to be having, going home, mm-hmm. wearing a helmet on their head and banging their heads. Or those who run up and, this one child, when I first entered that facility, the grounds, he, he, I remember a Latino, being a Latino child, didn't matter, but he happened to be, he came up to me. I don't know why I mentioned that, because it couldn't come, come from any family. But it just struck me because I, that was just what it was. I saw his face, hmm. and I saw maybe what wasn't. No, you saw his face. Yeah, I saw his face. That's how you. And he immediately him. came up, and then he started hitting, hitting me, before he even got a chance to. He was already scared. And I got then, and I decided not to stand up. I decided to get down to where his face was, just like I do with my dogs. All right. Right. You do. You get face to face. You get to that place to where you sit down. You let them know that I'm not a threat. You don't stand and loom over them in the adult version. Right. We do that with children in school here, the adult version. And then we grade them. We don't let self-motivation or free spirit reign the day. We have to grade because we know no other way. 
But what we're doing, what we're doing is not not being willing to be intimate with them at the level of their comprehension. And so so like what you did with this kid who is pounding on you, you have to take you have to take the risk to go into the painful place, but you got to do it in a way that helps that where everybody feels safe, right? So is as the as the more powerful person in that duality in that duo. Yes. Right? Absolutely. In that duet, I guess. Yeah. You had to come into his space yeah. in a way that you felt safe and he felt safe. It has to if you if if yeah, you have to obviously measure it up. Yeah, of course. I mean, ha- you, you, this, you have any, this is the by, skill, by any, right? This is, this is, this is, you know, this is that's what yeah. that's the trick is to do that. But you got to know that that's the goal. You yeah, you you wanted to move in that in the, that direction first and foremost, and not be out of out of kilter. It's a it's a balance. Well, and, you have to back off to a place of safety. Yes, and that you 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 head for that. You go there. That's the place to go. And by reducing my size, brought it down to him being being calm, and then finally he didn't need to strike out at me. But it was in the defense of his life that he, you know, all he knew that there was something else coming at him. He didn't have any information other than yeah. that which he doesn't normally see, other than the people that were always there. So whatever came into his home, yeah. in the state of mind that it this did, is, this takes could us, have presented the same thing. This takes us back. Any to combination. When she, I talk to teachers up here, and I have. Yeah, I my neighbor here. She teaches at the school up here, and her husband teaches at another school, the elementary. She says, in my school, I mean, in my classroom, first and foremost, in my classroom, I teach kindness. 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 And I take the same thing with the same thought to my children. When you, when you go out into the playroom, into the, into the play yard, you'll do the same thing that you're doing here. Kindness. No bullying. So, this conversa- so, so I have this conversation with my neighbor about such. He says, that's a wonderful thing because it's about the suffering of life and where we take it from there. It's the Dalai Lama's thing. I says, he, comes, he says, this idea of happiness is an illusion. I get that. He says, and I says, I, if someone says, are you happy? I go, no, I just stubbed my toe. I don't know about happy. However, it's from the inner contentment. It exudes. It comes from that out, and it's not to reside oneself to inner contentment, but that you have that, that part of you as inner contentment. There comes the happiness. And you know what happens when you have inner contentment? You don't piss anybody else off. Yes, there's no need. There's, there's, you, you, you don't have, you don't have an agenda. You don't have an agenda. See, I don't, I never go for the throat, and I haven't done that in my whole lifetime to. No, but to even feel, subtle agendas, was, right? It was, it was like because you're, because you're content, so you, get, you don't. There's nothing you need. All do, well, that's that's the point. There's nothing I need. All Doctor Mott would say to me sometimes we would discuss, and I said, well, I said we're talking fascism. You and I, I said, we'll part company. But when it comes to where you look at and saying, well, I'm feeling a little um, contempt, he said, and he looked at me, Mott. Uh, I go, oh, Mott, come on. He says, contempt. Only amongst contempt. So if you're feeling contempt towards somebody, then it's only your reflection of your own contempt. So don't go there. But when I said, but by the way, contempt for Mussolini? Okay, we can buy. We, give me a pass, man. Hitler, give me a pass, dude. 
Give me a pass. Because they're suffering somewhere where the line is drawn in the sand and you have to take it more than the primitive stand because, you know, for the sake of humanity, it is the most means... It's no... I'm okay, not saying okay, to, okay. Take, to take it by way of killing. No, 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 no. But, to, but let's, let's frame the debate because we've gone yeah. on a couple of different threads here. Uh, mm. You're talking about the Dr. Mott's yes. perspective on how to... What you can t- what you can talk about if, in a fully authentic way, right? Because he doesn't want to. You you won't be able to talk about fascism. Not in the light. Not in that same. Not in that same light. That's because it does. It's the only thing that will separate itself from our conversation. Other than that, and I question, hear what he the is. The question is why? Why? Why what, is that the thing? Why is fascism? Your a conversation about fascism. Why does it differentiate? Yeah. From from the con- not feeling contempt towards that. Yeah, I mean, if if, if what you're because saying history's wrought, wrought itself, you have to draw a line when it comes to the uh, human atrocities. So you can release judgment on virtually anything else and anybody else and any other kind of behavior, but fascism is a bridge too far. For when you. it comes to atrocities, of, yes, of you. In other words, it's not it's not explainable as. Uh, a cultural artifact. It's correct. Just, it's, it's not as explicit. You, you right. it's, it, it, what is what what draws us towards the ideas of shalom, of peace in the house, is to all st- we seek out. It starts here in their home. It goes forward. So you know what's out there. What you see that bad behavior. And fascism and doesn't start with that as its premise. Peace in the home is not a is not like there's no there's no. Peace in the home, shalom vibe to fashion. Peace in the home, if there isn't, it's because it is the way people are communicating their thoughts or the lack thereof. It defines itself by their inability to be able to find a dialogue to say we can we can agree to disagree. We can hit whatever fine points that we need as what what we find that binds us. The things, the strings that attach, we can agree. We know that they're there. We didn't even have to agree upon them. We were just in discussion or knowing each other. They were there. And those things that set themselves apart from it, that that is anything against humanity for the sake of, uh, needs to be called out. And it doesn't even need to be met with contempt. It needs to be met with re-educating people, and you're not going to make that that which is hateful go away. You just need to take those one on one with people. By the way, that to me is the the, the way to do it because the masses are just too hard. To, you see what happens with the masses. Yeah. So you have to. They're swayed as a nation of sheep. So you have to be willing to be intimate. To well, my life has been intimate with every with every soul with every in the spirit of connecting. And two, if it was if it was something that was boring, does, I mean, in okay. meeting, so it, it's it a hurt, different thing with the individuals. Does it, to, how do you stay safe when you're engaging openly, even with somebody who's like? Because we have to. If when, we're gonna, if we're when gonna you reach, use when you use the word safe, it needs define how I how in terms of my does that define a a, uh, a place of um, of. Uh, well, it, how I'm feeling about this person 
Well, you know, when you open up, you make yourself vulnerable, right? At some level, you make yourself vulnerable. How I'm here, it is that I don't have to. I don't have where I'm not feeling the need to have to be in a safe place from what I'm discussing, because it's either accepted or rejected. If where people will say, I think it's now time to go. We've talked our talk. Time. That's all well and good. Uh, but up until that point, if people are engaging, there's no. One doesn't have to feel. And Polynesia is the perfect example of not having to feel to go to that safe place because what you're, unless you're going to offend somebody, then there's and you know that it's deliberate and and calculated and right. looking a for calculated offense, a calculated insult. Yes, and and all predisposed or and knowing that you're you're having these thoughts to. Uh, so why is, Poly why is Polynesia? Why is Polynesia a great example? Why. Uh, why is Polynesia? Because it doesn't it doesn't present a uh, a pretext towards that any of that so, towards the towards negating the negating you as a human being. Okay, so I want to summarize a little bit here because this is what I've gotten from this conversation. We we enter into opportunities for intimacy. You, Blaze, have done this masterfully throughout your life. You meet amazing people because you are open to engagement and and you also look for it right your your sensors are on for it so the willingness to engage and to be intimate leads you on a very fascinating ride in life because you are open to experiences that are foreign to you without holding back your your at some level your willingness to be intimate with someone is your willingness to have an adventure because there's nothing more there's no bigger adventure than the adventure between souls, right? Souls, not mm. not not projections, not, not projections, but souls. So when you are open to that kind of adventure, you guess what? Your life is full of adventure. Yeah. And what shuts that down? What shuts that down is two. There's two ways it gets shut down. One, one can uh, shut down in the middle of an adventure because it's too intense. The other way is to bring is to bring judgment to the adventure before you've actually had a chance to experience. In other words, I I'm not understanding when you just said that. Does it mean deliberate judgment for the re and for what reasons? Oh no, it means it means ha basically it means having an agenda. Right, like I have an expectation that this experience, oh. this adventure is going to be a certain. Oh, so way. like a little plan, like but not quite a plan. An expectation. An like I, I have an expectation. They call it an expectation. What I'm, what I'm going to, how I'm going to interact with you. If I have an expectation and you don't match it, how do I hold that? Do I hold that as disappointing or do I hold that as interesting? So, what if you, if you actually are willing to, uh, if one is actually willing to engage, the adventure and not have judgment about it. You get intimacy on the fly. On the fly. And that's what you experience in Polynesia. More so. Yeah, I mean, that's the vibe. That's the Polynesia. That's the fly. I would not say the same for Mexico because it, 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 the, we're, we're also speaking of mindsets. And they're... So I want to... So let's, let's make a point of talking about Mexico the next time we get together. Absolutely. And, and it's so another for, it's another realm. So so just a just a final thought on Mamanetta and big, Polynesia. Big Mamanetta. Big Mamanetta and Polynesia and authenticity. The Polynesian way was 
was a beautiful introduction to you to a culture that emanates intimacy on the fly. Yes. If I may do a little footnote to all this, the same thing occurred the very next day in the morning. Well, the next day, not that evening in Fiji. We stayed at a little youth hostel where we had our own room. And the students were, I mean, people, travelers were there, maybe they shared. And we were having breakfast, and there sat a Fijian man. And we got to talking. And during the course of our conversation, I said something in a question that you brought up earlier about Indian, Fiji, Fijian Indian. Uh, and I looked at the man and I said something to him along the lines of thinking that was part of his ancestry and he gave he shot me a look I says if the if faux pas can have any other word other than faux pas bring them all on because I just committed the big boy faux pas and he looked at me and he says I'm a Fijian man I'm a Fijian man I go but I'd like to invite you and Christina I said excuse I did answer with excuse me I says I don't do this and I and he he look, he gave me a motion to say I understand that it's quite all right. So he says to me, John. He says, um, "You come out to stay with us when you come around to Suva to the university on the Big Island of Nandi. You come around to Suva. Just took a large hit a couple of weeks back. Uh, uh, a typhoon came through there, uh-huh. knocked the lights out of them. 120 died or something. And, the, and and so we went around the island and we stopped." We stopped at their place on the way out to Suva. He said, "Come and come, come and stop over." And there we stayed for a few days. Wow! All the children came down in the village. There came a personal tarot reading can offer you insight, information, enlightenment, and empowerment along your life's path. Hi C is a professional tarot conversationalist and ritualist with over ten years' experience. He's available for readings in a variety of formats, including parties and events. To schedule your personal tarot reading, contact HiC at tarotbyhiC.net or email him at hic at fireflywillows.com. Well, that's our show. I hope you enjoyed it. Life is calling, spring is springing, love is available in abundance, and adventure awaits. Go out there and enjoy the reemergence of vitality and the dance of life. And oh, before I go, I want to connect you with the show's new website, thisisconvergence.com. After a long gestation, it's up and making its maiden voyage today. Over time, you'll find more and more of the show's segments, past and future, there, as well as Convergence extras that are exclusive to the website. Check it out, thisisconvergence.com. Your feedback is always welcome. Until next time, Thank you for joining us. This program was brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. We hope you enjoyed the show. This is Deb Carousella. Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E for our live on-air call-in show, Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. It 
is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.